another episode of Not Your Average Operator with me, Paul Mellon McFadden. Oh, how are you going there, Tio? I, dude, I'm doing fabulous. Um, I'm just, we've been kind of chewing the fat earlier and uh, just kind of getting our minds ready for the conversation. But um, I think that before we go down that rabbit hole, I'd like to highlight how uh, Mike just fucked it away about three minutes ago. He did, yeah. didn't he? Are we going to dissect that? Could you talk the readers through how that, how exactly he did that? Well, so it's it's one thing that we pride ourselves here on being professional because um, we're mm. not average, right? We're slightly above average, just not by mm. much, but a little bit, by a little bit. And one of those things that we consider as a as a principle that upholds our not averageness is that when we say, "Hey, we're going to meet together at this time to talk about these subjects," then we make a concerted effort to meet up at, at said time. Concerted. And Melon, you. You and I reached out to each other a little early to be on time. Uh, and then Mr. Mike was nowhere to be found because was he Mr. was, what was he, doing? he was sleeping like a little princess. I think like he was in his bed, he, like a baby. He was in a diaper and you had to wake him up. <laughs> uh, how are you, you baby Mike? How are you baby Mike? Are you good? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I could be found. I was out last night and I had a great time and I kind of burned it down a little bit. Not going to lie. I had a little bit too much to drink and I was unconscious. And then my phone starts vibrating. Hey, hey, I might. Hey, I was like, holy shit. I suck, dude. So like, for the listeners, for the listeners oh. it's important to know he's got um, chili fries on his hair. He's got mustard stains on his t-shirt. Oh my God. There's hot dog juice. I can smell it through the screen. Is that hot dog juice? What is that? Taco Bell. That's my cologne. Damn it. Shirt. That's my musk. Don't, don't talk about your, my musk. Your VB cologne. That's right. Actually. Yeah. It is the VB cologne that I received from Australia from some people that <laughs> saved it up. Like it was a, like it was a hidden drug or something. They're like, we, we, we have something for you. And I was like, well, it's, it's, it's VB cologne. It's, it looks like a beer bottle, but it's from Australia. I was like, oh man. And I actually do wear it. It smells pretty good. I don't know. This, for the North American hang around me. And I think for it's the North American, smell, but for the North American listener, it's your uh, Australian redneck drink of choice. It's, it's not, it's not the, it's not some microbrewery product. It's Victoria Bitter. No. It's, a, it's a working man's beer. That's what it is. And uh, they made a cologne. So I gifted it to my buddy Mike because that's what I think of him. Or he basically said, hey, mate, you, you need something to cover up that mask. <laughs> <laughs> this will help. This will help. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so were there jello shots and stuff last night? Did it get, did it get crazy? No jello shots, man. Just uh, there was some uh, some cornhole, uh, some dancing, and uh, then there was some uh, we call them orange crushes. I remember I introduced you to those when you're here, Melon. So uh, orange crushes are big here, and then uh, uh, some uh, what do they call those? Um, uh, Moscow mules, and it was kind of like a little bit of a taste test all around. I had I had, I mixed drinks, I think, and that was my downfall. <laughs> That was my dog. <laughs> uh, but he looks bright as a daisy, doesn't he, Raph? He does. He, yeah. he just he looks spunky, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. 
Yeah. Uh, did, did I tell you guys I hate you both this morning? <laughs> All right, good. Now I feel better. Let's go. You don't, don't have don't to tell us. We know Dude, that. don't feel terrible. This is basically an extension of Dr. Tony and I and old uh, old man Tim getting after it my last night in Texas and Dallas. Oh, yeah. Those saw, two clowns. I saw a weird I'm going to save those stories. Yeah, I'm going to save those stories for when Dr. Tony's on the podcast. Just a, a quick update from this neck of the woods. Over the weekend, we had uh, our rugby club season launch. For the big boys, we've had two sessions with the kids, getting people in and out and a lot of co-ed and admin. And anyway, I'm just mentioning it to you two guys because there was a gentle sea breeze. I could smell salt and sea spray in here and just a faint whiff of coconut and this gigantic mullet strode onto the pitch. <laughs> so, but... Both you, you, both of you guys know uh, our Tongan brother, Sione. And uh, since we last spoke, he's he's landed in the sunny desert, and he rolled in just in time for his first for the first game of rugby. The big man just needed some boots, and <laughs> no one no one could believe their eyes when they saw the hair. <laughs> I think it's like Samson. I think his strength is in his hair, and he shall not cut it. <laughs> Does he tackle with it? He sort of does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's it's quite a sight just for the for the listeners, quite a bit of man. And um is a mix of the Tongan underneath and then the Samoan tattoos over the top and just soul glow on the top of his head. Just <laughs> soul glow. <laughs> There's just a sheet of hair. And it the like it looks good. It looks good. I I can't lie. If any of us could grow that, we would. And uh yeah, the big man's been out of the army for like four minutes and he just had like the hair has just sprung out of his head. It's it's good. And uh and he he drilled a few people. He gave him a bit of the old Samoan shirt from. And it was fun. Nah, yeah, no, nah, dude. I love that guy, man. Big, big, massive fan of Sione. Like I said, he's probably one of the most we were talking about him earlier. He's probably one of the most authentic people you'll ever meet in your life. He certainly is that. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. There's nothing, uh, yeah, there's no facade, zero. Anyway, I just want to let you guys know we'd had a bit of rugby and a bit of fun and uh, Cherry dug out and found a guitar to give to him, which he just tuned up and took with him under instructions to practice so that he could gig with Cherry shortly. So hopefully a video will be coming to you guys soon. That's awesome. By the way, I I sent you guys a message. I think I was specifically instructed Cheza to give me the, the weight of the amount of food that you two idiots put away on his first visit to your house i was like yeah. dude that's got to be like 50 pounds of food just for you two clowns cherry played cherry played that one well so she kept us at the pitch and we got uh, andy bennett his nicknames are something bandit uh across the road he's got a wood <laughs> benny benny yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. andy bennett anal b another uh, yeah. a bennett i can't remember how it goes anyway he yeah. roasted up just a massive amount of uh, pizzas and my son and the other little boys did the deliveries and it was just a, a rotating belt of uh, boys dropping off pizzas for all the gorillas down the pitch. Cherry didn't let us in the house uh, eat. She didn't let us take any food in the house. It's not her first radio. Yeah. Yeah, so good times here. So in terms of topic, um, probably for all of our listeners and Certainly for the three of us, this time of year always is a very poignant one. Uh, just we all had the anniversary of 9-11 yesterday, the 20th. And so we thought we'd 
uh, come together and have a bit of a chat and share about, you know, where we were and our memories of the day and uh, the biggest impact from it on our lives and, uh, you know, sort of the effects, how, how it's impacted our life. So uh, I don't know, Mike, you want to jump in uh, and kick us off here? Yeah, I will. So yesterday, you know, as you said that yesterday was 9-11 and it was the answer, you know, the 20th anniversary. Well, today is September 12th, uh, 20 years later. And on a calendar, it would look completely, you know, normal to be like, oh, September 11th, September 12th, 20 years ago, the world was entirely different just by 11 and 12. Like it, It's really, really wild to think about. But um yeah i'll i'll kind of kick it off man and so yesterday just kind of woke up and was watching the replay and i really think it's important to uh talk about some of the emotions and some of the things that we saw and really the meaning of it i mean anybody watching it is just like that didn't experience it is probably like oh this is fake or this is a movie you know like it looks something from hollywood but it was real and I think it's important to communicate that those emotions and kind of like what it was like uh, to live through that and, and see everything. It was just, you know, hearing about Pearl Harbor from grandparents, you know, oh, this is what Pearl Harbor was like. You know, it's just like, oh, OK, like, but what was it really like? And then you hear the stories and it's just like, that's insane, you know, and it really hits home. But uh, so yesterday I woke up and it was like they were replaying the news the live news. And I remember I was in eighth grade sitting there and uh, was it like first period class and people start talking about, Oh yeah, there was something to hit one of the trade centers in New York. And then it was like, Oh, okay. I didn't even know what, like what that looked like or anything. And uh, I went to second period and then they had the TV on and some of the teachers were watching it. And I was just like, Oh man, check this out. And everybody was like, saying someone bombed us and like there was just nobody knew anything and at this time it was just one plane that hit the building so it was just like oh it was probably an accident you know going in and out of the, the airport up there i mean the guy something happened to him I, I don't know he just hit the he hit the building and they showed the picture of it and it was just like this pretty big hole and it was like man that wasn't a small commuter plane like i i never flew a plane but i was like that's no small commuter plane and then, uh, then I was in my old teacher, uh, Mr. Huzar's history class, which was pretty, you know, awesome. He's a Vietnam veteran, and I know I've talked about him before. But sitting in there, and he, we have the TV on, and out of the left, out of the left side of the screen, here comes this other aircraft, and we're like, "Wow, look, there's another plane!" And then it just flies right into the building in a massive fireball, and I was like everybody in my class like gasped it was like oh my god like that just happened and people start freaking out people are running into the hallways screaming uh the teacher turned it off or somebody came in and turned it off actually and was like they they can't be watching this and i'm very thankful but mr huzar gets up and he turns it back on and he says they need to watch this this is history and i love that he did that um there was calls and stuff on the on the uh, announcements that there were people uh, being dismissed from school. Parents were coming in, getting their kids out. 
Um, my parents did not, but I, I honestly, I, w- I stayed in school the rest of the day and I went, you just went from period to period, but all you did is go to a different room to watch the TV and have conversations of like what was going on there. There really wasn't that many people left in school. Um, I remember going back to Mr. Huzar's and he was talking about it. Uh, he brought up Al Qaeda. I remember him bringing up Al Qaeda and then verbatim. Uh, he said, I bet it was Osama bin Laden. And I will never forget that. And he said it clear as day as he's sitting in his chair, looking up to his left, looking at the TV. And that's what he said. And I was like, what is he talking about? But in some way, I knew he knew what he was talking about. I, I was that confident in him. And I was just like, man, that's how wild is that? And uh, I, I was walking out to I, I ran home from it, from school every day. Just because it was part of my training back then. So it was about three, four miles and I would run from school. And I was got my backpack. I left my locker. I was walking down the hallway and I saw our hall monitor. His name was Mr. Gotchkis, Bob Gotchkis. And he was a Coast Guard veteran. And I'd always talk to him about joining the military and what I wanted to do. And we kind of were walking down opposite ways. And he like stopped and he looked at me and he just says, hey, Mike, I think you're going to get your chance, man. And that hit home in a way of like, oh, my God, like not only I knew I wanted to join the military, but now we were in a we were going to be in a state of war and everything kind of changed. I was in eighth grade at 14 years old. Right. That's a lot for me. And but I held on to that. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of from there, it formed my generation. You know, I, I talked to my friend, Adam, who was a Marine and a couple other veterans that, you know, I was in school with and grew up with, and they all went to serve and, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. And I was like, man, that really defined our generation, like in a way, like how crazy, but at the same time, like how, how amazing to be part of that history and, and doing what we've done. It's awesome. Yeah. Go ahead, Melon. It's funny. Um, I think the way you described it, seeing the, the the live cut pretty much around the world to the two towers and one with the smoke and them showing little glimpses of replays and no one really knew what was going on. Everyone was thinking, oh man, this must have been an accident or how did this happen? And it's like the moment that the second one hit was the actual, the, the moment in history when we knew this was an attack it was a deliberate thing that you, you had this sense immediately there's a plan, there's a mastermind, people have trained. And that it was like the second plane hitting really was like the corner turned from this could be an accident to we're, we're in a state of war. I'm a bit older than you. I was already in the military. I was in the Air Force. And uh, I'd stayed over at Cherry's place. And it was just before we moved in together. And I got up in the morning, it was just, it was super early in the morning in Australia. Woke up at like four to a bunch of test, text messages with a, a mandatory, everyone to get into work as soon as possible sort of thing. So I raced home on my motorbike and, you know, I don't know, it was like 4 a.m. the streets were black and not, didn't know anything, you know, you sort of, there's no mobile phone, no smartphones or anything. It was just, saw the text, turn the TV on left and then got home, got changed, went to work. And... It's such a strong, such a strong impact, you know, like we were in it. We were in it immediately. 
like I know um, the Australian Prime Minister was in the US at the time and he immediately committed Australian troops in he invoked as an ANZUS treaty between Australia, US and uh, New Zealand. And he invoked it immediately like NATO, an attack on one and an attack on all. And, you know, massive impact on my life too. You know, that was pretty much my adult professional career from then on. And I remember visiting uh, Ground Zero while it was still like a construction site in, in uh, December 2006 with Cherry before kids. I'd uh, had a couple of tours over Iraq already at this stage. And getting down there was like a, there wasn't any like viewing deck or anything. You couldn't get, couldn't access the site. But I think they'd just taken the last of the rubble out. And there was one building across where you could get up and view it down. And there was me and there was another veteran in his uh, jacket in, in a wheelchair. It was clearly a, a combat, uh, you know, wounded in combat. And we just stood there looking over this window at this massive, you know, it's a whole city block of just concrete foundations. Just stood there looking at it thinking, what happened here just echoed around the world all the way to South Australia and all the time in between. It was such a momentous thing, you know, and like the Western liberal democracies came together and it was like, you can't take anything for granted now. Like there was a change. You know, people can reach out and impacts can uh, can be felt. But there were positives. There were positives out of it, you know. Like we really, we really stood together. And I never met you guys at that, at that time, but we were thinking similar thoughts. Yeah. Well, Melon, just real quick, what you said is everything changed. You know, I, I remember hearing that so many times for weeks and it was just everything changed everything changed if i was to communicate that to someone who did not experience it and, and again that's one of my goals is to educate i think just like the our older generations taught us about pearl harbor and world war ii and all these other major events in vietnam and like sharing the the stories of it to to let them know like hey this is what it was really like you know there's something on tv you can see but then seeing it live or living in there's emotion and what i would say <clears throat> to that is yes everything did change and what changed was when you walked out of your house you felt like you were targeted like something could happen because literally nobody knew what was going on. You know, two planes flew into the World Trade Center. Then they 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 shut or did a shot over to the Pentagon and the Pentagon's on fire and there's this massive fireball and you're like, "Whoa, now they're in DC." And actually that morning there was reports just south. So I grew up in uh just south south of Pittsburgh, uh Pennsylvania. And there were reports that there was a plane crash just south of us. And we're all like, what do you mean a plane crash? Like what kind of plane? Like everybody was freaking out. Like what kind of plane? What are you talking about? Like, where did it crash? I heard it hit. I heard it hit Pittsburgh. No, I heard it hit this. I heard it hit this, you know, whatever. Nobody knew. So like literally everybody thought that there was like attacks going on all over the country. And then the FAA is like, all flights are grounded, like all these breaking alerts are going off. I mean, everything shut down and you felt unsafe on September 11th. You, like anything was on the table. 
your personal idea of freedom was rattled. It was just like, are, are, is this it? Are we done? Like, are, is, are, is somebody invading us? Like it went from one extreme to the another and, and, and just the fear of the unknown, like nobody knew what was happening. I don't even think the government knew what was happening. Like the, they were launching fighters up into the sky and they're just like, where, what, what do you want us to look at? Like everything's being grounded and just force everything to land, force everything to land. And if it doesn't, then, you know, I don't know if they, if they shot planes down or something, I, I don't know, but flight 93 that morning flew directly South over my hometown and then crashed in Somerset County which is just to the south of us. So that morning I'm sitting in class, flight 93. We looked at the flight path, flew right over my my school and was on its way, which you know they believed they were going for the White House with that one. But that's how freaking close it hit home for, for us, you know, and it was right there in Somerset. So it was like, that's what changed. And and like you can't mention that without talking about the heroes on that plane. Mm-hmm. And even, even in that moment of darkness, we started hearing about people on the plane having sent their last goodbyes to their wives and taking it on themselves to prevent that aircraft they were on from becoming a weapon and bursting into the flight station and forcing it down. I mean, that is just unbelievable heroism from men and women and parents. And I, that, I really want to talk about that, but... Raf, if you want to jump in with your with your story real quick, and then I, I really want to talk about the beginning of the war on terror because it did start that day as well. But I want to hear Raf too. Well, I mean, mine's mine pretty much parallels you guys. I was standing in my room, uh, getting ready for a calculus exam. Actually, I was going to I was attending a junior college in North Park. I'd already I was already enlisted, and I hadn't rejoined yet to be a, a warrant to fly helicopters, and. Uh, and just like you, man, I mean, I remember for whatever reason, I turned on the television while I was just kind of running through some notes, getting ready for the exam that morning. And uh, I, I saw the, the big commotion and I'm like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And I kept going deliberating whether it was a jetliner or a small, you know, personal plane or they just did, they didn't know what it was. But it, like you said, Mike, it was a massive, I mean, if you looked at the, you know, the scale of what was going on in that building, I was like, man, that's. That's crazy. But I, you know, I wasn't thinking being attacked. I just thought somebody got disoriented and probably just ran into the building, which I thought was kind of strange. But um, but it wasn't until that I actually physically watched the second plane. I immediately thought to myself, we just got attacked and we're and we are being attacked. Um, and and then I felt the same emotions everybody else did. Uh, first, it was a little bit of fear. You know, it was kind of a, it was a it was kind of a weird paradigm shift because it was like, wait a minute, what? who just attacks the United States in the heart of the United States. Um, and I didn't know Al Qaeda existed. I didn't, you know, I wouldn't know them the way I know them now um, to the extent that I knew that I do, but I just, all those, you know, Osama bin Laden, that name started populating uh, in the news like uh, later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it, everything absolutely changed. Um, and I think kind of like you alluded to on there was that moment, actually a couple months, maybe even shy of a year, where um, like the patriotism and the unity, not just in the United States, but I think across the globe, because you would see our uh, uh, cousins down in the uh, down, uh, you know, land down under, uh, we're all kind of, I mean, the world was just united behind fighting 
the evil that had initiated this whole thing. And that was just a beautiful thing. I mean, it's unfortunate that it was such a cataclysmic event, like 9-11, that that that's what it took to force this unity around the world. I mean, it would just be awesome if we could just, if it could be it all the time. Right. Um, but it's just not the way the world works. But anyways, yeah, I mean, it's really no different from you guys, man. And I knew that, because um, by this point, I had an idea of wanting to be a pilot, uh, specifically flying Blackhawks. And I knew that that, it was in my, you know, the cards were in my, in my being, wherever it was that we were going to fight this war on terror. And I knew that it was coming. So, um, and I, I wanted to, right. I, I thought it was something significant. I wanted to play a role, however small it was. I wanted to play some role in fighting these, these idiots and help putting them down. Yeah. I, the, the fighting back. All right. So let's get into that. Uh, it's, we were attacked on nine 11 and then also we fought back on nine 11. It was, instant right two two instances that pop into my mind is hearing the story about flight 93 and the guy that was on the plane he he, he made his final call uh, for people that haven't heard it you can go on and listen to it and he says uh hey we're gonna try to retake the plane and you can hear him talking with some other people you can hear one of the hijackers uh talking and yelling and then you can hear him say let's roll and he basically like got the people he needed and he charged the cockpit and uh ultimately the plane crashed in somerset and everybody everybody was was killed but uh they believe that was going towards the white house and that was they call that the first fight uh against the war on terrors it started on that plane with some heroic selfless people that knew they they probably weren't going to make it and they were just like we're gonna we're gonna take it to them uh, that was considered the first fight of the war on terror. The second one was something that I'll never forget in the emotions that I felt watching them yesterday, but the first responders in New York city and seeing firemen, uh, running into those buildings that are on fire with JP eight jet fuel coming down the elevator shafts and just burning it so hot, There's just everything. And everybody I remember was on live television uh, a, that live plane from the ground. It was a ground shot of people on the street just talking about the first tower. And then live, you hear this, this super loud plane aircraft sound. And then that plane just flew right into the building and the whole, everybody on the ground was screaming like, oh my God, like screaming and just running. And on the ground, you see police directing people like, get away, get away, run away. And then you see fire fire trucks pulling up and they're running into the building to go save people, man. Like I, I, I look at it. I have chills talking about it. Like how amazing are these guys to, to, to they're running into these towers with a plane just, just flew into them with all that. The, the heroic level is, you know, it's, you can't even speak on it. it it's insane. Um, they saved thousands and thousands of people out of those towers. Um, and at the end of the day, there was the numbers, you know, years later, they finally found out after digging through the rubble and everything, there was 2,996 people that were killed 
uh, that day of all the attacks. 343 of them were New York fire firefighters, uh, 2,606 uh, civilians in, in the two towers that came down. There was 265 people on the planes that died instantaneously. And there was 125 at the Pentagon, uh, just to kind of break that down. Um, that was the first fight of the war on terror. That's when we fought back and, you know, running back in to save people's lives and standing up to the fear uh, in which they ultimately, that was their goal is to scare the living hell out of us. Those firemen and police officers and first responders ran into the chaos and denied them of that fear. And, uh, but I, I can't say anything about it, man. It's just amazing. Whenever, yeah. whenever I think about those um, civilians on the flight and the, the guys running into the building, and as a, effectively as the building's coming down in some cases, I always think of that uh, verse out of the Gospels about greater love hath no man than that he laid down his, love, his life for his friends. And how much more you have to have when it's not even your friends. You know, just for your fellow man, just for innocent people going about their day. And so, you know, there's massive sadness and trauma around that day, but there's there's something really beautiful in the human spirit that they showed. People, normal people stepped up in that plane and people carried out their training and did the best they could. And they got people out. I know that there was a person in a wheelchair carried down the whole freaking staircase, right? Like there was heroism. And that means something on a day like that. Yeah. I remember, I remember not too long before this, I know it's weird, but Mr. Rogers, I don't know if people remember Mr. Rogers, but he always came out and he said, always look for the people who are helping. And he, and he actually ended up, they brought him out of retirement to speak to the world. Uh, about 9-11 and the evil that took place. But also he talked about um, the love for each other and loving your neighbor and how many examples there were about loving your neighbor that day. Because um, the next day, we're talking about heroism and coming together and Raf spoke on it as, we, you know, it united all of us. But what did that really feel like? What did that mean? Uh I went to school September uh, 12th. It was a Wednesday. I went back to school. Uh, not everybody was there, you know, but I wanted to be there. I wanted to learn more of what was going on. I wanted to learn from my teacher in, in particular, but when I went, there were American flags starting to be put up everywhere. And everywhere you saw on TV, there were lines of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people lined up to give blood. No question. Like there were there were reports from all over the country that there were fire departments from all over the United States who were sending their firemen to New York City to, to get in. There were stories. I remember reading a story. I think they made them included a movie. There were retired military personnel putting on their uniform. There was a Marine in particular, and he went to ground zero and was like, put me to work. Like, I'm here. I'm here to help. Like, what do you need done? Like getting coffee for people, getting water for people, digging out, you know, whatever they could do. And it was just like this whole sense of like, I'm an American. Here I am. How can I help? 
And that was it. And that was the feeling anywhere you went. There was no there was no Republicans, Democrats. There was no politics. There was no this guy. You know, there was no nothing. There was nothing. It, it was gone. You were just everybody was an American. Everybody in the Western world came together. Um, I don't remember seeing stuff from Australia, Melon, but hearing your side of it right now was very cool. Like to hear how it affected Australians and like where you were, man, because it, it wasn't just us. It wasn't just, it was the entire world. And 100%, uh, like I'd, I'd been in the military for seven years at that time. And I, I knew hundred percent that we were going to be going to war. And it was, it was very clearly transmitted into every Australian uh, family home that evening. The prime ministers has invoked answers. We all, we all the military people knew what that meant. I'm, I'm sure loads of civilians didn't know what it meant, but all, all of us men knew what it meant. And he was, he was in and we were in. You know, if I could just chime in, um, just because we're sitting at the 20 year anniversary and obviously we know that uh, certain events had just occurred in Afghanistan when we, not we, but my government uh, pulled out of there uh, in about the most disastrous way possible and uh, got some people killed and left some people stranded. Um, it's weird because I think that I'm afraid that there's going to be a demographic of people that think that just because we're physically out of Afghanistan, that um, this war on terror is going to be over. And what they don't realize is that we've actually just given them this safe haven to start doing what they're doing. Um, just like Mike and Melon, I know you did, uh, you can attest to this for the last 20 some odd years, um, or something inside of that, we've been, all we've been doing is just tracking, fighting, monitoring, watching their every move for, you know, not just the Taliban, but Al Qaeda, all the different networks all over the world from the Philippines to Africa, to, to Europe, to Yemen, to, you know, even the ones, the Haqqani network in Pakistan, working in Afghanistan and, the one thing that has always been consistent is, um, yes, there was that paradigm shift on 9-11, but Al-Qaeda has always hated the Western uh, way of thinking, the Western way of living. Um, you know, ultimately what they want is a caliphate. Uh, and I think everybody saw that through ISIS-K, which is a spinoff from Al-Qaeda, a nastier version of it. But Al-Qaeda is not far behind that. And so for anyone who thinks that just because we left Afghanistan, like, oh, that, that chapter is over you're absolutely a thousand percent wrong. It, it, all we did was weaken our position, um, which is unfortunate. And that's another for another discussion, but um, make no mistake, the Al-Qaeda will not rest until the world is a caliphate. That is their goal. That's always been their, their goal. Ask me how I know. Ask me. I mean, it, that's what we've been doing for the last couple of decades. Like we know what their MO is. That, that is what it is. So Anyways, I just I, I think about the massive par the, the massive change we've seen in the last 20 years and how I just it, I, I'm genuinely afraid that there is a demographic that literally think that just by, you know, saying nice things about a group like that, that somehow they're going to change their, you know, <laughs> I'm only going to say this because I thought it was it was so asinine. I actually started laughing. The current administration was talking about um, how they were upset that the Taliban weren't more inclusive. And I, I literally, whatever I had my hand just fell out and I just, I could not stop laughing. I, uh, anyways, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's, I, I'm afraid. I'm genuinely afraid after 20 years, I actually, you know, but 
Got yeah, Malin. My understanding is that in the 20 years since, that there, I believe, were about a, has been about 100 fatalities in the US based on Islamic ideology, uh, extremists, not Islamic, but the, the terrorists having over 20 years. And that is not, that was not on the cards on 9-11. That was like their aim and they had just achieved like the biggest touchdown in freaking terrorist history. They had just executed on something, the, the cheering out of uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban and so on. And it, it felt like, you know, they were, that was the start of something that they were moving into something on a mega scale. And that capability just got crushed. And the 20 years since has been a lot of blood, sweat and tears from intelligence services and military forces from our combined countries standing for something and preventing, preventing these kinds of attacks. And I know that there's people in our community who are still doing it tough in the aftermath of the withdrawal and fall of Afghanistan. But that 20 year figure, like the, the stats there stand, stand up. Like that's, yeah. that's against a determined foe who had a huge capability, had the intent and had carried it out successfully. And so to have gone from that day for the next 20 is just an extraordinary term. Yeah. And, and I just like to say this now un unequivocally, and I know that you guys completely wholeheartedly agree and anyone who has an ounce of dignity, the fact that we just left people, Americans or any Western ally stranded the way that we did, like it leaves a pit in my stomach. Like, I mean, literally the foundation of everything we've ever done in, in any sort of military service or just any service, anything where you're, you put others before yourself. I mean, at, at, at the most basic level, you don't leave, you just don't leave people behind. You just don't. I mean, you'll give up your life to, to make sure that they make it home. And that's just, and that's what motivates you to go into these dark places that, that Mike has been to, right? Like before you kick the door down, it's not that you're not afraid. It's just that, you know, that if you go down, your brother's going to drag you out of there and put you in a helicopter and they're going to, you mean like you're going to, no matter what, you're going to make it home, whether it's with your shield or on your shield, you're going to make it home. And that's something that has driven us and propelled us to be, to go into some of these dark corners in the world to, to take, to chase and kill some of these fanatics. Um, you know, the fact that we just did it wholesale in broad daylight with zero ounce of shame. It's almost like I don't even recognize my country. Like how did we go from, 912 to literally find your way home how how i think well what i would like to share and raf i wholeheartedly agree man i, I really do uh with a 912 you brought up i knew that wasn't gonna last nothing great ever lasts but when when the slogan came out of like we'll never forget never forget 911 right that's not a throwaway line that's not a fun, that's not a, hey, a sporting event. Hey, remember we won the Super Bowl, right? No, 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 no. This was a day that changed everyone's life. And for, you know, for me personally, I, I shared it with you guys, but like I have the newspaper from September 12, 2001 on my wall with, with a folded American flag. And I've kept it for 20 years. And I look at that picture of the face of the guy that's running away, like crying and, and, and scared the, the, the look on their faces and the, and the, 
the tower exploding behind them. I really have never forgotten. I, I remember those emotions. I remember what they did to us and their intent. And that wasn't like, hey, we're just going to hit them and then call it a day. That was a very well thought out plan of, hey, how's the U.S. going to react? What, how are, like, what are they getting themselves into? And this, this whole thing has been planned. And if you don't think that it's continuing today, then you're, you're great. Like what they enacted 20 years ago, there's another phase that's just starting right now. And that they're like, yes, this is what we want. They want influence. They want things to be generalized. They want things to be dulled down. So it's like, oh, it's not that bad because, you know, like the way they they do it, they they want to gain access by immigration. I don't care. That's not a political thing. That is a jihadist extremist uh, uh, tactic. And, and, and you can't do it in a battle. You can't do it in one fight. It has to be generational. So it's like, hey, how do we influence? Well, we infiltrate and we have to gain knowledge. And you know, I'll say it, there's people in government right now that I don't think should be in our government that's clearly going, okay, you're not denouncing terrorism. You're not denouncing certain groups like Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda. Like you're not denouncing them. Then what the hell are you doing in our government? Do you not remember what happened on 9-11 and, 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 who, and who hit us? If you think they're nice people now, you need, you need to turn in your hat and get the hell out of here because obviously you forgot. Okay. Like I, I love that line, but I hate that line because I hear people say it and it's, and it's so cheapened. All right. When, and, and again, this is not a political statement, but as a leader, as a human, and as you said, with dignity to see the person responsible for saying, yes, we're pulling out of Afghanistan in the way we did standing at the nine 11 Memorial yesterday uh, that I was couldn't big, watch it. I couldn't I, watch it. I didn't. I turned it off. I was like, there's no way I'm watching this and how yeah. disrespectful it is. You know what I mean? To honor those people and what happened that day. Total disconnect. Like, I don't care who that was, political views, whatever. Like, you're, you're done. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, I also visited 9-11, the site, Ground Zero again after the reconstruction. So I had my first visit there in 06, after having that effect on my life for five years at that stage. And I visited again in uh, 2015. And I was there with the Mac Daddy, who you guys have met, who had uh, served as a J. Shout today. out. Shout out to the Mac Daddy. Living it up in the sun in uh, Western Australia now. But so I was there with the Mac Daddy, who'd uh, served as a JTAC in Afghanistan, wanted uh, pilot as well and my brother my brother-in-law uh derek Yee, u.s navy and uh we separated from uh, the, the the wives and the three of us went down into the memorial below the pool of reflection together and we just shared an experience down there it's very moving i highly recommend anyone um i just highly recommend that experience to, to anyone to go down there and you'll see the, the fire trucks that have been crushed with pieces of concrete. And you'll see video of the skies over North America clear as the, as a time-lapse, you see all the aircraft landing and not one aircraft airborne, just military jets doing loops over cities. There's just, there's just a thousand things down there that 
you couldn't describe how well done it is. And to go through that with, you know, a, 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 com, a comrade and my brother was just a super moving experience. There's something very, very special about the way they've, they've captured something there. And I highly recommend any veterans get down there and uh, other right-minded folks because it's been done right. There's only one way to do it. And I remember thinking that when I was with you at Arlington, Mike, there's yeah. only one way to do these things and it's perfectly. And I was very moved, found it very moving. We didn't talk a lot when we were down there. And when we came up, you know, we we just was very quiet. We were very quiet for a good couple of hours. And, uh, you know, I just, it's a life changer. The, to live through that experience and it's not the young people of today's fault that they don't know it's like us as you were saying hearing about Pearl Harbor right, right. Um, but it was a, a day in history and there's been a response from it that you can look at and you can look for the good that occurred as you were saying 9-12 and the unity and my government committing in immediately and all of us becoming brothers in arms somehow and that shared humanity and the commemoration and the 20 years of real peace that have come after that the protection. And, uh, you know, I just, I would hate people to forget the positives that have come out of this horrific experience because those positives are, are tremendous as well. And I, since you're being the positive guy, I'll be the doomsdayer. I just want to circle back to what Mike just said. And that's the fact that, you know, it didn't start on 9-11. It started about a decade before that. Al-Qaeda has been actively trying to infiltrate the United States. I mean, there was the World Trade Center bombing before. Um, 93. Yeah, exactly. 93. I was one of the few um, people that I knew who knew about it. It was called UDL yeah. at that time. Yep. Uh, USS Cole was bombed uh, off the coast in the Persian Gulf. I mean, there, there's all the, those are the most significant ones inside those significant um, attacks tax, there was also smaller efforts that the public didn't know about. So it didn't start 9-11. It actually started, I mean, I don't really know the uh, radical history of, uh, of Al-Qaeda, but it started at least a decade before 9-11 from, from my, you know, simple, you know, superficial understanding. So that was just like you said, that was like the, the, the crown jewel of their efforts, if you will. And that's actually what Unfortunately, what we needed as an as a world to wake up, you know, they woke up the sleeping giant, and then we just brought death and destruction on them. Um, and uh, anyways, well, I think we'll see how things play out. What I what I would like people to think about because this is, I know for the three of us, this is always in our head. You know, I mean, we're the three of us are still very actively within that that mindset of like, hey, we know that there's new plans being constructed or that one's already in place, right? We, we, we know that. And what I would like to say is I don't want people to live in fear because we have people out there engaged in the fight still that are still trying to prevent and, and take care of the problem. Uh, I'm still doing that. You know, I have, I still have half a decade left of service minimum. <laughs> like I'm out there doing it. And I know some of the amazing people that are doing it. I know Raf just spent a lot of time overseas. He's doing it. Mellon is training people to do it where he's at right now, you know, to, to take care of the problem. So don't live in fear because you have some amazing people that are standing up to do some amazing things. Right. But before nine 11, 
throughout the 90s. Yes, there were there were attacks on the coal in 2000 and the bombing in 93 and like some other stuff that happened. Not major things that were constantly being reported on, but things are out there and things happened. Uh, if you think right now that everything's just fine and everything like 9-11 number two could be tomorrow, right? Because that's what they want. They, they won't rest until another one happens and they're always actively against us. Okay. So not to live in fear, but to understand that, Hey, yes, the world isn't all, you know, butterflies and rainbows. There are, there is evil in the world and they are trying to figure out a way to do it and prepare yourself, understand what is going on. And at work, we have a sign that says, Train like today is September 10th, 2001. Like, think about that. That it could go down tomorrow. And if we're not ready, then we're ready to hand over all the freedoms, everything that we have, everything that, you know, for at least for the United States, the last 200 plus years, we're, 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 we're just going to hand it over because we're not ready because we're not ready to admit that there is evil in the world, that there is a problem, that everything's just fine. And we're so focused in our own tiny little bubbles all the time. It's not, it's okay to have that, but not all the time. You need to acknowledge that there is stuff out there. Um, and just, just think, be like, Hey, if today was September 10th, 2001, am could I deal with this? Could Am I ready to contribute? Do I fully understand what I have in this country? And then I think just want to, I want to riff off what you're saying there, Mike. You know, again, not living in fear and not, not feeling overly stressed about these things, but this is a very good reason to raise capable and resilient human beings that you need to expose your children to stress age appropriate that they can deal with, that stretches them that they learn the character ethic as they're growing up. They don't have everything given to them. And that, that you're growing adults that are gonna be capable of sustaining and driving forward this experiment that we're undertaking in the West. Because the Western liberal democracy is the best thing that's ever come up in a form of government. And it's not easy, it's not natural, and it requires capable resilient citizens in all the different parts of the society. Like I can't, I just can't see the uh, millennial snowflakes taking the selfies with the Pomeranians. And I know Raph loves them, but I just, you know what I mean? Like we need those other capable, strong young people, young, young men and women stepping forward. And they're there for sure. But this is a reason to advocate for the resilience and character ethic in parenting. The perfect example, and it sucks, it really does, but you know what Raf said about Afghanistan, if you want to see what it's like, and I've mentioned this in, in, in uh, episodes before of like, there's examples and there's previews of what could happen. Like, hey, do you want to experience this type of culture? Well, you can fly somewhere and experience it and then have the comfort of coming back to the US, right? Well, Afghanistan is a new example. How do you have a democracy and then lose it within a few weeks and look at your country, right? The military doesn't want to fight anymore. They gave up. Once that's over, your securities are gone. And look what the Taliban did. They rolled in and now they're beating women, executing people, uh, hanging people from helicopters, you know, 
all of their freedom that they thought they had. And some of the, you know, then we evacuated a lot of the people, right. But um, the people that helped us, at least not all of them, obviously, but that's how fast it could go because one generation says, nah, we don't want to fight. We actually don't want to fight for this and it's over. And, and, and someone's going to come in and just clean house Afghanistan could definitely happen to the United States if we ever get to that point where we're like, yeah, you know what? I don't care about fighting anymore. I'm not fighting for this. I, I you know, th- I rather have somebody else come in and do this or uh, I'm just tired or I don't care. You know, all I care about is my Starbucks and my Pomeranian puppy and my Instagram and, you know, living my best life. I don't care about anybody else. I care about m- me and I got mine. That's how fast it could go. And everybody needs to realize that, you know, I think the difference is there are amazing people out there who raise capable children and who grow into amazing, you know, men and women, and they understand the term of bigger than themselves and sacrifice. And those people go forward in the military and first responders uh, and in all forms that that honestly help other people. And I think that's the difference right now between the United States and a place like Afghanistan is that sense of purpose, the heritage, the honor, the traditions that have been built through wars, war after war after war and traditions and all the challenges that we've had. That's what separates us is we have people that will go, oh, you have something bad. Send me. I'll do it. I'll take care of it and I'll give my life for it. That's the difference. And we cannot take that for granted. Do you guys mind if I finish with a quote? It's a bit of an extended one, but it really captures something. It's by John Stuart Mill. War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth a war is much worse. When a people are used as mere human instruments for firing cannon or thrusting bayonets in the service and for the selfish purposes of a master, such war degrades a people. A war to protect other human beings against tyrannical injustice. A war to give victory to their own ideas of right and good. And which is their own war carried on for an honest purpose by their free choice is often the means of their regeneration. A man who has nothing which he cares more about than he does about his own personal safety, who has nothing which he's willing to fight for, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight for ascendancy in the affairs of humankind, human beings must be willing, when the need is, to do battle for the one against the other. John Stuart Mill. All right, guys, I think we'll leave it there and uh, we'll see you next week.